Well, it's true. Every one of us has a story to tell, don't we? And every story is unique. The people we've met, the places we've been, the experiences we've had, they all together make up a story that is really unlike any other. And when we tell our story, there are certain parts of that journey that tend to come up over and over again. Maybe the most noteworthy characters we've met are the most interesting or otherwise meaningful places, the most significant experiences, because generally speaking, those reoccurring parts of the story involve the people or places or experiences that have had the most impact on our lives, right? The point or the points in that journey when someone or something has changed us or some aspect of our life was altered in some exceptional way. So when you meet someone new and they ask you to tell them about yourself, generally you don't say things like, well, I, you know, I like to shop at Walmart, right? I uh, met the mailman the other day. He's a nice guy. You know, we, we like brick. We moved into a brick house instead of vinyl. No, you don't talk about those kinds of things. You, you share the parts of your life that tell your story. The story of who you are, what defines you, right? So when we tend to talk about things like where we were raised and what our family is like, where we went to school, how we met our spouse, our kids, our jobs, the things that we're passionate about, because those are the people and the places and the experiences that have shaped us, that, that make us who we are. And if you're a Christian, the single most defining aspect of your life the seminal experience that has shaped who you are is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. There are certainly what scholars refer to as cultural Christians, uh, those who attend churches and they hang out with church people and participate in religious activities and generally identify themselves as Christians, but they relate to Christianity more on a cultural level uh, rather than being an active follower of Jesus Christ. And those two designations are very different, even though the follower of Christ may participate in many of the same activities as the cultural Christian. Because the cultural Christian is simply engaging in religious behavior that is otherwise empty. Whereas the follower of Christ is engaging in religious behavior out of a compulsion to become more like Jesus Christ by religiously following his teachings and his example in Scripture because that's what uh, he commanded us to do, certainly in Matthew 28. 19 and 20 and other places in scripture as well. So for the follower of Christ, or we could say the true Christian, your decisions, your preferences, your passions, your motivation, your purpose, it's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ and his gospel because that is what defines you more than any other person, place, or experience, according to Scripture. It's what the Bible says. In Colossians 3, uh, among many other places, uh, the Word spells this out for us. We don't have time this morning to read the entire chapter. I encourage you to do that on your own, but we'll look at a few of the highlights. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, and we can't overstate what Paul's saying here. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Skip down to verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and in all. Christ is all. He's everything. 
Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to the God, the Father, through him. Everything that we do, everything that we say is to be done in his name. Everything. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay? Just a small sampling from this scripture. and We're taught that when we're in Christ, he then becomes everything. We've died. He's now our entire life, verses 3 and 4. And so we're to say and do everything in the name of the Lord, verse 17. And all of the work, all of our effort, everything that we do is to be done for the Lord and not for men, verse 23. As Christians, according to Scripture, everything about us, who we are, what we say, what we do, our decisions, our preferences, our passions, our motivations, our purpose, it's all defined by Jesus Christ in us. He is our everything. Okay, which is why when we tell our story to others, that unique tale that communicates who we are at our core, that story will always arrive at some point at Jesus Christ, what he's done for us and how we are who we are because of him. And that is our our Christian testimony, which unfortunately many carry around in their bag of life stories is just one of the many stories that they have to tell. And if they have a conviction about sharing the gospel with others, they sort of wait for the opportune time to pull out their testimony, their Jesus story, to share with that person that they happen to be getting to know at some point. And the problem with that approach is that for the Christian, and I'm including myself here in this, by the way, it often becomes this really awkward story that we're constantly trying to figure out how to cram in between the other more natural stories that we tell when we're with other people. And for the person that is listening, when you finally do work up the courage to pull out your testimony, your Jesus story, it feels like a giant setup many times. Like you've been working them this whole time, just pretending to actually be interested in them when actually uh, you've just been waiting for the right moment to pounce on them with your religion. Right? Of course, that may not be how you actually feel. But that is how it is so often perceived by the person that you're sharing it with. And therein lies the problem, as I see it, with the vast majority of evangelism efforts of the American church today, or at least in our generation. We develop these programs and curriculums and creative devices and then we teach them to each other so that we can make something that is inherently unnatural somehow feel natural. But the only people that we're fooling is ourselves. The rest of the world around us generally isn't buying it, which is why much of the church has been going through a major cultural overhaul the past couple of decades. And there's a lot of good that has come out of that. It's not all good. Okay? And so always I think we need to turn to the pages of Scripture for the answers that we need. Because at the end of the day, after all of our clever approaches and all of the programs and all of the new ideas for sharing the gospel, after all of that, Jesus and his disciples are still hands down the best model for us to follow. And so why we make everything so difficult, I'm not sure uh, all the time. Because what Jesus and his disciples modeled for us is actually quite simple. Right? It's quite clear. On the other hand, it isn't uh, necessarily easy, which may be a clue as to why the church has tried to create a better method for evangelism and discipleship. But in the end, if you want to know how to most effectively share uh, the Jesus story of your life with others, what you have to do is read about Jesus and his disciples in the Bible and pay attention because it's all laid out for us in these pages. And by the way, 
As a side note, I don't mean uh, to say that all of our evangelism efforts in the church are in vain or invalid. They're not. In fact, the American church has had phenomenal success in sharing the gospel through evangelism programs. Right? The testimony books that we've produced are an extremely effective, non-threatening, non-awkward way to share the gospel with someone. You hand them a book or you, you mail them a book. Our community groups are a very natural way to share the gospel and your testimony with others because it's done in an informal uh, setting, a relational setting in someone's home. That's why we should be taking people to community groups with us. That's why we should be sponsoring these books. So I'm not uh, slamming the church here by any means. I'm simply saying that as a rule, sharing our testimony, sharing the gospel with other people should never be a mode that we sort of shift into when the mood is right. Or some independent part of our life story that we bring into the conversation only after we've had a, a minimum of three non-gospel related meetings with a new friend and we've created a safe environment for sharing Jesus with them. No, we, we don't work up to it in that manner either because that's just as much a program as anything, by the way. The point is that if Jesus Christ is truly everything for you, if He is the single greatest defining relationship in your life, then He will be evident in everything that you say and do anyway. Your entire life will exude Jesus Christ. You won't, you won't have to try and create an atmosphere or work someone up into the right moment to share your testimony or to share the gospel because it will be in the very fabric of who you are and everything that you do. And in fact, people uh, will see and hear and experience that from you every time you say or do anything. Okay, uh, We Christians should be easy to spot. We should be easy to, to spot because of how we live our lives, not because we're wearing a big Christian t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It's how we live. And as we saw last week, most conspicuously because of how we love each other, how we treat one another, which is just an outworking of Jesus Christ in us. Okay, So people should be able to look and say, okay, that must be a group of Christians over there. You can just tell by the way that they act. And I don't mean in a bad way. Right? It should be obvious to people that we're different. And so as we continue this sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to work our way actually through two chapters this morning, um, 25 and 26, in a message entitled, A Story to Tell. And we're going to talk about telling our story, which again is so much bigger than sharing a story. Right? Because it's not just a story, it's our story. And it's not just our story, it's His story. So it doesn't just describe something about us, it completely defines us. And so at the end of this message, we should, each of us, have a clearer understanding of how to share our testimony and the gospel with others because each one of us has a story to tell. And there are a lot of people who need to hear and experience your story. Okay? A lot of people need to hear your story. All right? So let's turn there together. Acts chapter 25. These chapters aren't very long, so we're going to read through them fairly quickly. And then we'll go back and discuss a few points. I'll, I'll uh, stop a couple of times along the way. But we're going we're gonna to stress some points at the end in regards to telling our story. And although we see uh, Paul sharing his testimony throughout the book of Acts, he really lays out his story in the gospel more comprehensively here than probably anywhere else in his series of defense speeches at these various trials. So this is after Felix has been replaced by Festus as the Roman governor in Caesarea. Festus has now inherited the problem that is the Apostle Paul in prison. 
because Felix refused to make a judgment against Paul, there was nothing to convict him with. And also he refused to release Paul because he wanted to make the Jews happy who wanted to keep Paul locked up. Okay, So we'll pick up our story at uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Now, after, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Festus replied that Paul was kept, being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. It also sounds familiar. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, which also sounds familiar, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Okay, so this is the religious Jews' chance to reload, right? In their quest to have Paul silenced once and for all, and they're coming at him from every direction that they can. Their first approach is to petition the Roman authorities to have Paul move back to Jerusalem so they can ambush and, and kill him, which they were unable to do back in chapter 23 because the plot to kill Paul was discovered and the Romans sent Paul to Caesarea with over 400 soldiers. And so this is the rebooted version of their ambush plan. It's the sequel to the movie, which is thwarted once again by the Romans. Okay, this time because Festus simply refuses their request to have Paul moved. And so he tells them, if you want to bring charges against him, you can go to Caesarea with me and we'll have a hearing there. And that's what they do. They go to Caesarea. They have a hearing before the tribunal. Uh, nothing against Paul can be proven, of course, because the accusations against him are false, as always. So Festus, probably wanting to rid himself of the problem, offers to send Paul back to Jerusalem. But Paul appeals his case to Caesar, which was within his legal rights because he was a Roman citizen at the time. Okay, in Paul's situation, and Festus agrees. So uh, that's what happens. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You think so, right? So before Paul gets shipped off to Rome... King Agrippa II shows up with Bernice. That's his sister. She traveled with him everywhere. And King Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the, the, the same Herod that had Peter thrown into prison, the same Herod that had uh, James executed. But this Agrippa, Agrippa II, I mean this Herod, was not nearly as harsh uh, or cruel as his grandfather or great-grandfather. Okay? He was actually uh, known as a very pious, very religious Jew with a fairly extensive knowledge of Jewish beliefs. And he ruled over several of the small, uh, predominantly Gentile territories in the area. So he was kind of a, a local Jewish king, if you will. And since his rule over the temple in Jerusalem was conferred to him, or granted to him by Claudius, the Roman emperor, there was a good working relationship between him and the Roman authorities. And so he and his sister Bernice come down uh, to Caesarea probably to congratulate Festus on his new appointment as governor. And Festus expresses his dilemma about Paul to Agrippa. He's looking for some advice about what to do with him. And so Agrippa asks to hear Paul's case as well. Okay, so let's turn to chapter 26 as Paul begins to tell his side of the story. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. He's talking about resurrection. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In other words, you Pharisees believe in the resurrection, and I'm telling you, He was resurrected. Why is that so hard for you to believe? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the, all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, so here we see Paul sharing his testimony. It's what he's doing. He's telling Agrippa his personal story about his encounter with Jesus Christ. And as a side note, by the way, when he quotes Jesus, says it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That was a colloquial saying at the time that people used to use. It was a reference to how they would drive the ox carts. The oxen would pull the carts and the driver would whip the oxen and they would kick back often. So they attached these plates to the ox carts with spikes so that when the ox would kick back, he would kick into the spikes and it would teach him effectively that their resistance to your master is futile. You need to obey. Your life's just going to be harder when you disobey your master. And so Jesus likens Paul's resistance to him as the ox that kicks against the goads. These spikes were called goads. Okay, and so Paul's sharing this story, this personal story about his own encounter, his Jesus story, with Agrippa. This is his testimony. And likewise, it's really important that we share our testimony with people that we encounter throughout our lives. And I, and I want to point out here that our personal testimony and the gospel are two different stories. And we just need to clear that up quickly, okay? Obviously, they're related. Um, and we'll talk about the importance of making that connection in a few minutes. But we should understand the difference between the two. Because it can be really helpful when we're thinking about sharing Christ with other people. And I, I talked about this a little bit six or seven months ago, I think back in August. Um, but I want to revisit it now because it matters when it comes to sharing our faith. Okay? Back in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 42, Peter was sharing the gospel with some Gentiles. And he says that Jesus commanded his followers to preach to the people. And he says to testify. Now why does he say preach and testify? Because those are two different things. The word preach in verse 42 is the Greek word keruso. refers to the public proclamation of the gospel. The word testify in verse 42 is the Greek word dea mortoromai, which refers to the confirmation of something. Okay? So we preach or we proclaim the gospel, which is the story of Jesus Christ, and then we testify to confirm that gospel in our own lives personally. Two very different words, two very different meanings, and yet in contemporary church culture, unfortunately, we've made them almost one and the same. But they're not the same. The gospel is a story expressly about Jesus. Our testimony is a story about us. Both are very important. Both are supposed to be a part of our witnessing to others. But we have to be careful that we don't fall into the habit of sharing our testimony alone, believing that we've shared the gospel. But that's what some people do. I've heard people share their personal story and then say, yeah, I shared the gospel with that person when actually they hadn't. Okay, it's becoming fairly common though. People will, will share that story and they've not actually communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can and we are commanded to share with others how Jesus changed our lives personally. But the gospel must also be shared. The gospel is not simply the Romans road. That's part of it. It's not four lines about how Jesus saved our souls as we've been taught most of our lives. The gospel is a story that informs people 
about who Jesus is and what he did here on earth. From Genesis to Revelation, and I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. It explains how God redeemed his people, how he secured our eternal hope and salvation from sin and death through Jesus Christ before any of us were born. It communicates his future plan for all of mankind. It's a much larger story than what we usually think of as the gospel. So the gospel, and we'll come back to that, is a Jesus story. And it applies directly to our lives. Our testimony brings people into that gospel story. Our testimony makes the gospel personal. And it validates or it confirms the gospel at a personal level. So our responsibility... Our response to the gospel in our own life is to share that gospel and our testimony of how that gospel has been proven or confirmed in our lives. Okay, Remember verse 42, it says to preach and to testify. And the order isn't important here, by the way. We don't need to focus on a formula. We need to focus on content. So we can share a testimony about what Jesus has done for us first and then follow that up with the gospel, which explains why God would bother to send His Son to die for mankind, or we can share the gospel first and then use a testimony to to validate or confirm that gospel message in our own lives. The point is, our response to the gospel is to preach that gospel, which focuses on Jesus Christ, His birth, His life, His, His kingdom here on earth, His death, His resurrection, the purpose of His substitutionary atonement, the forgiveness of our sins through repentance, and then salvation by grace through faith, and the consummation of His future kingdom. It's all the gospel. And all of that focuses on Jesus Christ. And for some, that information can come across as nothing more than something interesting or some historical, uh, something historical for maybe discussion's sake. It may not necessarily seem personal to them. Uh, to some, that sounds simply like a historical myth or a religious belief without any relevant application for us today. And so we combine that with a personal testimony. And all of a sudden, what may have seemed at first to be nothing more than a myth or an abstract belief now becomes a reality because the listener is drawn in to a first-hand account of, of the gospel at work in someone's life. It makes it personal. It's a powerful combination. And, and it is not a program, by the way. That's what's modeled for us in Scripture by uh, the apostles. Jesus commands it in Revelation 12, 11. He says, They overcame him, referring to Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, which is Jesus' sacrifice, that's a gospel element, and by the word of their testimony, which is the story of Jesus Christ in their lives personally. Okay? Of course we know that none of our preaching or testifying goes anywhere without the Holy Spirit convicting the hearts of men and women to receive the message, right? That's, that part is His responsibility. But ours is simply to preach the truth of the gospel and couple that with a testimony of how that gospel is working in our own lives. And that's what Paul is doing here with Agrippa. He's testifying to his personal encounter with Jesus Christ, but as we keep reading, he begins to incorporate elements of the gospel. Let's read it, verse 15, chapter 26. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the gospel. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, he's testifying again, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's an element of the gospel. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. This is more testimony. To this day I have had, uh, had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. That is the gospel. And he was saying these things in his defense, when he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, so Paul's given an opportunity to make a defense for himself, and he does that. But notice how he takes the opportunity also to share his personal story, his testimony, infused with the gospel message. In fact, this was normal for Paul. He did it all the time. He never had to try and figure out how he was going to share the gospel with someone because he understood the gospel doesn't fit into our testimony. Our testimony fits into the gospel. All right. At the end of the day, we as individuals are not the focus, ultimately, of this whole story. Jesus is the focus. We're a part of it. We're a, a big part of it. But to be clear, we fit into his plan. He doesn't fit into ours. This is God's story. We get to be a part of it. And when we think about it that way, sharing the gospel as we share our testimony becomes much more natural, which is what we see the disciples of Christ doing all throughout the New Testament. Because they understood that their lives were a part of God's plan from the beginning. And it's the same for us. So instead of thinking about our lives, our story as an independent story, and then trying to add a Jesus story into that somehow, right, when talking to other people. Instead, when we fundamentally view our story as a natural part of the larger gospel story, then the gospel very naturally becomes a part of everything that we say and do. Just as we see with Paul here before Agrippa. Just a natural part of who he is. Our testimony and the gospel, in fact, are inseparably linked. You cannot rightly tell one without the other. And so elements of the gospel begin to show up in every meaningful conversation, in every relationship, in everything that you do. Your life exudes the gospel of Christ, which is constantly being confirmed in how you live, which is your testimony. You can see how it's 
really more than a story. And you can see how it all fits together into one narrative, into one big story, which is really the better way to share Jesus Christ with others. We allow Him and the testimony of Him in our lives to be evident in every part of our lives so that when you meet someone new, it doesn't take long for them to understand that you're a follower of Christ, right? Not because you're obnoxious about it, but because it shows in how you live. It shows in how you talk. It shows in how you make decisions. It shows in what you value and how you prioritize your life and how you prioritize others in your life. The way the Christian lives his or her life is different than the way the world lives their lives. It's certainly supposed to be. And people should be able to see us and see that difference. And when you live that way, that will then, I promise you, it will very naturally lead to conversations about the gospel. Because your friends who are not followers of Christ will at some point, they will ask you, without you even having to bring it up, what's different, or they'll ask you about your faith if they know what's different, because it's infused into every bit of who you are. That is certainly what we see with the first century Christians here in Scripture. There, there are very few examples of personal evangelism in, in Scripture. Very few. Almost none. You know that? When you compare that to the masses of people who came to Christ because they saw how the disciples of Jesus Christ were living, they came to them looking for what they had. And it says the Lord consistently added to the church, to their numbers, those who were being saved. They just saw how the people were living and they came to them. The sooner we get this today in the church, the sooner we can jettison all of the evangelism programs because our lives will testify to the gospel 24-7 without the need to create an atmosphere or the right moment to make some kind of presentation. We just preach Christ with our lives. Every single aspect of our lives. I saw a sign somewhere in a restaurant that said, uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Something like that, right? The more you do that, the more you live that way, the more natural it becomes and the more obvious Christ becomes in you. So, so yes, testimony, our testimony in the gospel are two different stories. But probably the better way to view the relationship between the two is that our testimony is a smaller story within the bigger story of the gospel. And they, they really should never be separated from one another because they were meant to fit together. They were meant to work together to overcome the enemy of our souls. We see that in Revelation, to lead the lost to Christ. We see that in Matthew 28, to usher in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We see Jesus talking about it all through his gospels. This is how it's supposed to work. Our story, always in the context of the larger gospel story, which, by the way, is the way that the Hebrew people lived their lives from the beginning, according to God's design. Uh, for the Hebrews, there was no secular and sacred. Okay, everything was sacred. Work was sacred. Relationships were sacred. Life was sacred because God was over all for them and he was in all. It was a, what they call a holistic approach to God and to life. The Greeks later introduced Hellenism, a, a more Hellenistic approach that separated secular and sacred. And those two were later mixed by the early church fathers like Augustine uh, into what we call dualism. Now, it's a mixture of Hellenism and, and holism, which is essentially what we have in the Western church today, in the American church today. 
But to get back to God's design, He should permeate every aspect of our lives and relationships without any separation whatsoever. We really should think holistically when it comes to God in our lives. Okay? Your work, your marriage, your church, your Bible study, your vacations, your conversations, your relationships, it all becomes sacred. It all belongs to God when you allow your life, your story, to become completely enveloped, overshadowed by the gospel of which your story is a part. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He had this all figured out ahead of time so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You see, your life, your story, has been a part of the larger gospel story from the very beginning, which is how we should view our lives in relationship to the gospel. Our lives, our stories are sacred, every part of them, because they belong within the gospel of Jesus Christ, inseparable. Inseparable from his great plan from long before any of us were here. That should completely transform the way that you think about your testimony and the way that you really think about your entire life because it's all sacred. It all belongs to God. Okay? And I just want to touch on one more point as I'm wrapping up in just a couple of minutes quickly. There's a real danger in treating our personal testimony as the authoritative last word on all things God. All right? and what happens when we divorce the gospel uh, from our testimony, again, the gospel is not just a few verses about Jesus' sacrifice. The gospel is the entire story of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. All of the New Testament testifies to Jesus Christ. It's all the gospel because it's all the story of Jesus. And if you want a simple answer, what is the gospel? It's the story of Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He did, what's going to happen, past, present, future. Right? It's all here. It's all the gospel. When we separate our personal testimony from the gospel, what we're doing is we're submitting the gospel to our personal experience when it, it should be the other way around. And yet that's just what's happening with uh, some leaders in the modern church. And then consequently those who follow those teachings. When someone says, I have an extra biblical revelation. I've had a vision. I was off in a cave and God told me this. And they begin to hold it up and point to it instead of scripture as the truth. And then people begin to follow those teachings. That's how we end up with cults and false teachings and false religions. Okay? When we begin to dismiss portions of the Bible, of the gospel, which is the authoritative, definitive account of Jesus Christ in favor of our personal experiences, then, then we teach those experiences as if they were gospel. We start treading on very dangerous ground. And, and, and this is how, uh, like I said, we see so many of these people who are going off the rails even today and have historically. One way to know if someone's teaching is valid or not is to look at what they're pointing to for validation of that teaching. Do they point to the scriptures in context with other scriptures? That's really important. 
or do they point to their own personal experience as validation for what they're teaching? Well, I know the Bible said this, but I had a vision. I know, I know that verse says this, but God spoke to me. Be very careful because nothing God says will ever disagree with what he wrote in here. There'll never be any disagreement. Rob Bell, some of you have probably read about him this week. He's been all over the news. The founder and former pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. 10 or 15,000 people, I think a huge church. He's also a best-selling author. He has his own television show now. He was recently interviewed by Oprah. And she asked him when the church was going to get on board with same-sex marriage. And this was his response. I'm quoting. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense, when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and just want to go through life. This is a classic example of submitting the gospel to personal feelings, personal experiences, in deference to the cultural pressures of our day. Right? If you compare what he just said to Paul's response to King Agrippa when confronted with questions about why he had the culture of his day all stirred up, Paul said, verse 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to, to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This is a direct reference to the Scriptures and what they say about Jesus Christ. Verse 23, that Christ might, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's referring to the Gospel. Paul shared his story, his experiences, always in the context of the Gospel according to the Word of God. He never separated the two, and he certainly didn't teach his experiences as authoritative above and beyond what Scripture teaches, but that's exactly what some people do. And so I merely offer this as a caution to all of us to always be certain that our testimony is rooted and submitted to the Word of God. Beyond that, let's allow the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, to permeate our lives, every part of our lives, every word, every thought, Every deed, every relationship, every desire, every passion, every plan, all of it, all of our effort. Because once our lives are wrapped up in the gospel and we see our lives that way, inseparable from the story of Jesus Christ, we won't have to look for ways to testify about him to others. It won't be awkward anymore because he will be evident in everything that you do, how you talk and how you work and how you play and how you live every part of your life. It becomes very natural. And then when others see and encounter you, they see and encounter Jesus Christ in you. It's a holistic way of approaching our life and our testimony and the gospel. It's all part and parcel. It all fits together very naturally. And this is precisely why we chose uh, the slogan that we did for our church, Upcountry Church, Experiencing Life Together, Living Out the Gospel. Because that is our story. It's us living out the gospel together. And it's a story that other people need to see and hear from us. People need to hear our story. They need to hear your story. So, so let's tell it. Okay? Let's tell our story. Let's pray.